This episode covers the events of September 11th, 2001 in graphic detail and with explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. By the morning of September 11th, the plane's operation is imminent. With minimal skills, the 19 hijackers and their support system have managed to evade, penetrate, or exploit seemingly every weakness in the American security system. Before getting into the attacks, here is a snapshot of what was happening in America on the morning of 9-11. On the front pages of the country's three most influential newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, there were stories about stem cell research, President Bush's tax cut, EPA regulations, a series of murders in Colombia, and the New York City mayoral election. The primary to determine the two major party nominees for the general election in November was scheduled for 9-11. There was also a special election that day in Boston to fill the congressional seat held by the late Joe Moakley. Other stories in the national conversation were the Gary Condit scandal, the findings of the investigation into the August 2001 plane crash that killed R&B singer Aaliyah, and the Bush administration's missile defense policy. There were two big sports stories in early September. NBA legend Michael Jordan was preparing to come out of retirement and would play the final two seasons of his storied career with the Washington Wizards. On September 9th, San Francisco Giants slugger Barry Bonds hit three home runs against the Colorado Rockies, giving him 63 for the season. In doing so, he broke Roger Maris's previous record of 61. A month later, he would finish the season with a record-setting 73 home runs. That record still stands two decades later, with an asterisk because of allegations Bonds used performance-enhancing drugs. Looking at those newspapers now, they are relics of a bygone era that would end within a few hours after coming off the presses. By coincidence, there was a story on the front page of the New York Times that morning by reporter C.J. Chivers about the arrest of Patrick Dolan Critton, a former Black Power revolutionary who robbed a bank and hijacked a commercial jetliner from Ontario to Cuba back in 1971. What was happening culturally in America on 9-11? Bob Dylan, Jay-Z, Slayer, and Nickelback all had new albums released that day, planned months in advance by their respective record labels and publicists. Jennifer Lopez and Ja Rule had the number one single in the country on the Billboard chart. System of a Down's Toxicity would hit the number one spot on the Billboard album chart. The number one movie at the box office the previous weekend was The Musketeer. NBC's Friends was the most watched show on television. Fox's new counterterrorism drama series 24 was still two months away from airing its first episode in the United States and Canada. The number one fiction and non-fiction books on the New York Times bestseller list were Clive Cussler's Valhalla Rising and Stephen Ambrose's The Wild Blue. I'm David DeSola. This is the eighth episode of Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. By the morning of September 11th, the many branches and layers of the American national security system had failed to stop the plot, for one reason or another. The last line of defense, airport security workers, would have the same result. In those days, security screenings were handled by private companies, were contracted by the airlines for this purpose. Mohammed Atta and Abdulaziz Alamari checked out of their hotel room in Portland, Maine at 5.33 a.m. and left their rented Nissan in the airport parking lot. 
They cleared airport security just seven minutes before their 6 a.m. flight to Boston took off. There is some context to this. Before 9-11, passengers could check in and go through customs as close to the wire as they wanted. After 9-11, passenger check-ins were cut off at 45 minutes before takeoff for domestic flights, 60 minutes for international flights. What would have happened if Atta and Alamari had missed their first flight? The other three hijackers on American 11 were waiting for them in Boston, as were the other five booked on United 175. The American 11 team would have had an insurmountable problem. They would have had three muscle hijackers on board, but no pilot to fly the plane. In all likelihood, the 9-11 plot probably would have proceeded, but with only three planes. Back to the story, the ticket agent who printed out their boarding passes would later recall that Amari smiled when he asked for his photo ID. Atta did not. Quote, he just emanated contempt and anger, he told the Associated Press years later. He was sallow with deep, dark, brooding eyes, and he had a scowl on his face. He was obviously in a bad mood. He looked at people as if they were nothing. I guess that's what they were. He knew he was going to die, so why should he care? While checking in, Atta was selected for further scrutiny by CAPS, the Computer-Assisted Passenger Pre-Screening System. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, Under security rules in place at the time, the only consequence of Atta's selection by CAPS was that his checked bags were held off the plane until it was confirmed that he had boarded the aircraft. A security camera silently captured the two men passing the checkpoint. Otto was wearing black pants and a blue long-sleeved shirt. Omari was wearing khaki pants and a white long-sleeved shirt. Otto and Omari arrived in Boston within 45 minutes. A few minutes after landing, Otto took a phone call from Marwan Al-Shehi, the lead hijacker who would fly United 175 into the South Tower that morning. Though they were both at the same airport, they did not meet in person. This would be their final conversation. Atta, Omari, and the other three American 11 hijackers checked in and went through security over the course of the next hour. The other three muscle hijackers were all selected for cap screening in Boston. All three cleared the security checkpoint and went onto the terminal to board the plane. At a different terminal, Marwin Al-Shehi and his team of four muscle hijackers went through screening without a hitch. All five are on board United 175 by 7.30. Over at Newark Liberty International Airport, the four hijackers check in for United 93. According to the 9-11 Commission, one of them was chosen for extra screening by CAPS. His checked bag was screened for explosives, then loaded onto the plane. This checkpoint, like the ones in Boston, did not have closed-circuit camera surveillance, so there is no footage of hijackers from three of the four flights that morning. Meanwhile, 240 miles to the south, security camera footage from Washington Dulles International Airport shows the five hijackers passing through a security checkpoint in three separate groups. Three hijackers were flagged by CAPS. Two others were subjected to additional scrutiny by the airline representative at the check-in counter. Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar had both been placed on a terrorist watch list a week earlier, but that list was never shared with airport security. At the time, the watch list was not checked with passenger manifests for domestic flights. By this point, the attacks are imminent. The security footage from Dulles and Portland is chilling, showing seven well-dressed men who could be any passengers at any airport in the world. 
Each one passes through security checkpoints while presumably carrying box cutters, utility knives, or chemical spray in their carry-on bags for the monstrous crime they are about to commit. According to journalist Terry McDermott's book, Perfect Soldiers, quote, The utility knives were permissible under FAA regulations. The box cutters and chemical sprays were not. They all made it on board. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, We asked a screening expert to review the hand wanding, and he found the quality of the screener's work to have been marginal at best. The screener should have resolved what set off the alarm, and in the case of both Malked and Hazmi, it was clear that he did not. In all, nine of the 19 hijackers were subjected to additional security screening measures before being allowed to board their flights. The four planes took off between 8 and 8.42 a.m. that morning from three different airports, all of them bound for Los Angeles or San Francisco. The first ones in the air were American 11 and United 175. They both took off from Boston's Logan International Airport at 7.59 and 8.14, respectively. According to passenger manifests of American 11 later released by the U.S. government, the five hijackers were sitting in three separate groups within the first ten rows in the first and business class sections of the plane. It's also worth noting another passenger in the business class section of the plane, Daniel Lewin, sitting in seat 9B. He was one row behind and across the aisle from Mohammed Atta in seat 8D. Abdulaziz Alomari was next to him in 8G. Lewin was a mathematician and co-founder of Akamai Technologies, an infrastructure company which made the internet faster and more efficient. He was traveling to Los Angeles that morning for business. He had taken this flight 30 times during the course of that year. Lewin was born in Denver, Colorado. As a teenager, his father moved the family to Israel in 1984. There, Lewin flourished both physically and academically. He joined the Israeli Defense Forces and eventually tried out and was accepted into Sayeret Mitkal. This unit is the IDF Special Forces, who have been involved in almost every major Israeli counterterrorism operation since its founding in 1957. Because of this experience, Lewin understood the Arabic language. According to his biographer, members of the Sayeret Matkal were trained to kill an enemy with their bare hands and a pencil. The 9-11 Commission report notes that Lewin, quote, may have made an attempt to stop the hijackers in front of him, not realizing that another was sitting behind him. The hijacker referenced by the 9-11 Commission was Satam al-Sukami. He was sitting directly behind Levin in seat 10B, according to the flight manifest. If Lewin tried to fight back, he was not successful. Flight attendant Betty Ong mentioned in her phone call that an unidentified business class passenger had been stabbed. In a separate call, her colleague Amy Sweeney reported that the passenger sitting in 9B, who we now know to be Daniel Levin, had his throat slit by the passenger sitting behind him, who we now know to be Satam al-Sakami, and appeared to be dead. The available evidence strongly supports the view that Daniel Lewin was the first person to die on 9-11, before American 11 hit the North Tower. Keep in mind, there is no way we will ever know for certain everything that happened during the flight beyond what was reported during a few phone calls. The hijackers took control of American 11 and United 175 at approximately 8.14 and 8.42 a.m. Flight attendants on both planes notified the airlines of the hijackings. 
Passengers on board began using their cell phones or the earphones on the plane to call their loved ones. At 8.19, flight attendant Betty Ong called an American Airlines reservation office in North Carolina to inform them that her flight had been hijacked. Her call is the first time authorities on the ground become aware of the unfolding crisis. This audio is from that phone call. Number three in the back, um, the cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. She would remain on the phone for the next 25 minutes, relaying whatever information she could. Her colleague, Madeline Amy Sweeney, called an American Flight Services office in Boston and did the same. There is no audio recording of this phone call that Sweeney spoke with American Airlines Flight Service Manager Michael Woodward, a man she had been friends with for a decade. She told him there were four hijackers and gave him their seat numbers in rows 9 and 10, though not all of them matched up with the information in the flight manifest. She described them as Middle Eastern and noted that one of them, quote, spoke English very well. She was presumably describing Muhammad Atta. Most of what is known about what happened on American 11 is because of Betty Ong and Amy Sweeney's calm professionalism during a crisis that neither of them could have foreseen or trained for. At 8.21, the hijackers turned off the plane's transponder. In doing so, the effect on air traffic controllers on the ground was, quote, immediately degrading the information available about the aircraft, according to the 9-11 Commission. CNN described a transponder as, quote, a radio transmitter in the cockpit that receives a signal from secondary radar and returns a squawk code with the aircraft's position, its altitude, and its call sign. It is constantly being pinged, helping air traffic controllers on the ground determine the airplane's speed and direction, too. The squawk code is a four-digit identifying code that the pilot enters into a transponder during each flight. This code helps air traffic controllers recognize each individual plane from others. There are unique transponder codes that pilots can use during certain situations. 7500 for hijackings, 7600 for communications failures, and 7700 for emergencies. There is no evidence the pilots were able to punch in 7500 to alert air traffic control of the hijacking. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, with its transponder off, it is possible, though more difficult, to track an aircraft by its primary radar returns. But unlike transponder data, primary radar returns do not show the aircraft's identity and altitude. Controllers at centers rely so heavily on transponder signals that they usually do not display primary radar returns on their radar scopes. At 8.24 a.m., Boston Air Traffic Control captured this audio of lead hijacker Mohammed Atta. The thinking is he meant to address the passengers on the flight, but mistakenly spoke to air traffic control instead. We have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any move, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. The sentence, we have some planes, immediately catches the attention of Terry Biggio, the operations manager in charge of Boston Center that morning. He tells someone to listen to the audio recording of the transmission to see if the voice on the other end said what Biggio thought he just heard. Otto's transmission five minutes after Betty Ong's initial phone call is confirmation that there is a hijacking in progress on American 11. The audio is chilling to hear, especially knowing with the benefit of hindsight what he plans to do. 
History and experience were not working in favor of the passengers and flight crews on the four planes that morning. During the heyday of airline hijackings in the 60s and 70s, the protocol was to cooperate with the hijackers, who generally wanted safe passage to a friendly country, or to take hostages to exchange for the release of a prisoner. They could not have imagined that the 9-11 hijackers intended to kill themselves and everyone on board by using the planes as guided missiles. Hijacking airplanes and suicide attacks were not new tactics. The first documented case of an airplane hijacking took place in 1919, just 16 years after the Wright brothers achieved the centuries-old dream of flight. The first hijacking of a commercial aircraft happened in Romania in 1947. According to Wired editor Brendan Kerner's book, The Skies Belong to Us, between 1968 and 1972, more than 130 American airplanes were hijacked. The closest parallel to the 9-11 attacks in terms of weaponizing an aircraft for a suicide attack was during World War II. Japanese pilots in the Pacific Theater deliberately targeted their planes against enemy targets, usually ships. Al-Qaeda had used suicide bombers in its previous attacks in Kenya, Tanzania, and Yemen. 9-11 would be the first time anyone used commercial jetliners for this purpose. There was one aspect of the 9-11 attacks which reflected Al-Qaeda's trademark. Multiple, almost simultaneous attacks against different targets intended to achieve maximum publicity. The 1998 Africa embassy bombings were an earlier example of their preference for synchronization and spectacle. 9-11 took it to another level. Before going into the attacks, it is necessary to recall the sheer scale of two buildings that haven't stood in 20 years. When the first tenants moved in in 1970, they were an extraordinary feat of architectural and engineering design. Today, they only exist in photos, videos, and our collective memory. Here are some facts about the World Trade Center from the 9-11 Memorial and Museum in New York City. Approximately 50,000 people worked in the World Trade Center every day. Tens of thousands more passed through the entire complex each day. Each tower had 110 floors. Each floor was approximately one acre of space, roughly the size of a football field. Each tower was a quarter mile tall, the North Tower being slightly taller because of the antenna on the roof. Each building weighed 250,000 tons and contained 99 elevators and 21,800 windows. There were a combined 43,600 windows in both towers. It took two months to wash them all. There were a combined 198 elevators in both towers and 15 miles worth of elevator shafts. Both towers combined provided 10 million square feet of office space for 35,000 people and 430 companies. On windy days, each tower would typically sway 12 inches side to side. Each tower had two high-speed express cars, each capable of carrying 55 adults. They went from the ground floor directly to windows on the world in the North Tower or to the observatory deck in the South Tower. The elevators moved at a speed of 1,600 feet per minute, a rate of approximately 27 feet per second. A tourist video donated to the 9-11 Museum shows the South Tower Express elevator making the trip from the lobby to the observation deck in less than one minute. There was enough concrete in both buildings to build a sidewalk five feet wide from New York City to Washington, D.C. The Twin Towers were the tallest buildings in New York City, 
offering views as far as 45 miles in any direction. The World Trade Center even had its own zip code, 10048. The three restaurants at the top of the North Tower employed 450 people who spoke 25 different languages. The outdoor viewing platform on the observation deck in the South Tower was 1,377 feet up, the highest in the world. The observation deck attracted an average of 1.8 million visitors a year. From opening day in December of 1975 through September 10, 2001, an estimated 46,350,000 people visited the observation deck. For perspective, that number is almost equal to the combined population of California and Indiana. Glenn Collins, an editor at New York Times Magazine, compared the site of the buildings to opening a box of staples. Historian and author Lewis Mumford called the World Trade Center, quote, purposeless gigantism and technological exhibitionism. But there's something else you should know about the buildings. Since the first tenants moved in in 1970, the structural steel that physically held them up had never been fireproofed to the satisfaction of the architects and engineers who designed them, nor had it ever been tested. Decades later, the fireproofing started crumbling off. It was only in the years after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing that the Port Authority started replacing the fireproofing. By the morning of 9-11, the task had been completed on about 30 of the 220 floors in both towers. The fireproofing was finally tested in 2004 as part of the post-9-11 investigation by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The fireproofing met the standard of protecting a 17-foot length of steel for two hours, as the building code required at the time. The problem was that the actual pieces of steel in the World Trade Center were at least double that length. When tested on a 35-foot length of steel, the fireproofing did not provide the minimum two hours of protection required. As American 11 continued its approach to Lower Manhattan, Madeline Amy Sweeney kept reporting from on board the plane. According to Michael Woodward's notes and news media reports of the phone call, Sweeney told him, quote, Something is wrong. We are in a rapid descent. We are all over the place. Woodward asked her to look out the window and report back what she could see. Her response, quote, I see water. I see buildings. We're flying low. We're flying way too low. According to the 9-11 Commission, which attributes this information to Michael Woodward's notes and their interview with him, Madeline Amy Sweeney's last words before the phone call ended were, quote, Oh my God, we are way too low. <laughs> On the ground that morning, French filmmakers Jules and Gideon Naudet were filming a documentary about a rookie firefighter assigned to a firehouse in Lower Manhattan. The station got a call about the possible smell of gas and sent a truck to investigate. Jules Naudet rode along with Battalion Chief Joseph Pfeiffer, his camera rolling. The firefighters of Engine 7 and Ladder 1, along with Chief Pfeiffer and Naudet, were at the corner of Church and Lispinard Street in Tribeca. Then they heard the loud noise of a jet engine overhead. The plane was flying so low, witnesses could read the word American on its fuselage. Naudet looked up, with his camera rolling, and pointed it in the direction of the World Trade Center. In doing so, he managed to get historic video footage of American 11 crashing into the North Tower. It hit the north side of the building between the 93rd and 99th floors at 470 miles per hour. 
The plane tilted to its left in the final seconds before impact, hitting the building at about a 30-degree angle, spreading the damage across multiple floors and tearing a gash more than 150 feet wide. The rapid descent described by Madeline Amy Sweeney is best explained by the findings of a flight path study of American 11 done by the National Transportation Safety Board. Investigators found that the plane descended an estimated 27,000 feet between 838 and the moment of impact at 846, a descent rate of approximately 3,200 feet per minute. Only two other images of the first plane are known to exist. One came from a webcam across the East River in Brooklyn, set to take pictures of the Manhattan skyline every four seconds. The other was filmed by Pavel Hlava, an immigrant from the Czech Republic who was riding in an SUV about to go into the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. It was 8.46 a.m. Within minutes, American television networks went into breaking news coverage. This is how the attacks were first reported on NBC's Today Show, the most watched morning show in the country. Keep in mind, NBC's headquarters at Rockefeller Plaza in Midtown Manhattan is about five miles northeast of the World Trade Center. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It happened just a few moments ago, apparently. We have very little information available at this point in time. Every major news organization in America has an affiliate, a bureau, or its headquarters in New York City. So journalists in New York and around the country jumped on the story immediately. The network soon aired live feeds of the North Tower on fire, a searing image which was broadcast across the country and around the world. According to the 9-11 Museum, an estimated 2 billion people, roughly one-third of the world's population, saw or heard of the attacks that morning in person or through television, radio, or internet broadcasts. Back in Tribeca, after having witnessed the plane crash, Pfeiffer and his team of firefighters left the gas leak and headed straight for the World Trade Center. Chief Pfeiffer radioed the first report of the crash to dispatch. We just had a, a plane crash into the upper floor of the World Trade Center, transmit a second alarm, and start relocating companies into the area. About 90 seconds later, Chief Pfeiffer contacted dispatch again. We have a number of floors on fire. It looked like the plane was aiming towards the building. Transmit a third alarm. We'll have the staging area at Vessey and West Street. Have the third alarm assignment go into that area. Second alarm assignment report to the building, okay? This is how Chief Pfeiffer explained the order in his memoir, Ordinary Heroes. Quote, with those two orders, I had asked for about 150 firefighters to go to the scene with two-thirds reporting to me in the building, others reporting to a staging location where they would await assignment. Within four minutes of the attack, they were the first firefighters at the scene. They began organizing the rescue effort inside the lobby of the North Tower as more first responders began arriving by the minute. Jules Nade asked Chief Pfeiffer if he could come along. 
He was wearing nothing but jeans, a t-shirt, and sneakers compared to all the protective gear worn by firefighters. Pfeiffer gave him permission, along with explicit instructions to never leave his side. Thanks to Chief Pfeiffer, Naudet was able to capture extraordinary footage from inside the North Tower lobby that morning. Within minutes of arriving, Pfeiffer told the fire safety director of the World Trade Center complex to evacuate both the North and South Towers. Remember, the South Tower had not been hit yet. Chief Pfeiffer wrote in his memoir, quote, My plan was to urgently mobilize resources, evacuate all occupants, and rescue those who could not get out, save life first, contain the flames, and then we'd think about extinguishing the fire. On the ground, the smoke bellowing from the World Trade Center was visible from at least 45 miles away. 200 miles above the Earth, NASA astronaut Frank Culberson was able to see and take video of the smoke from the International Space Station as it passed over the eastern seaboard. FBI agent Ken Maxwell was in his car coming out of the Lincoln Tunnel on his way to the office. You know, I saw the smoke billowing from the North Tower, and my phone in the car, you know, the classified phone rang. It was my boss, Barry, you know, the assistant director. And he said, do you hear what, what's happened? So I said, yeah, I'm listening to the CBS radio news. They're saying a small plane hit the North Tower. And he, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm going down there. I'll see you at the scene. And so it, it, contemporaneous with that, all of the radios I had in my vehicle, you know, police radios, uh, NYPD's emergency service channel, citywide, said they're all lighting up and sending all these units down to the trade center. So I made it in record time down the West side highway, you know, red light and siren and um, pulled into VC street uh, almost simultaneous to this, to the second plane hitting. Did you see the second plane? I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I went, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the noise for, for sure. And then the chaos afterward, because, um, you know, when I parked the car and I finally was able to find a spot, uh, I could not get up into the plaza. Uh, you know, my intent was to go into Tower One because that's where initially, uh, you know, the fire department, police department leadership were going to meet uh, as part kind of a uh, forward command post. But I was unable to get in there because of the throngs of people evacuating and the panic. And so I uh, started to Having worked, I worked in the World Trade Center uh, when I got out of the Army back in '74. It was my first civilian job as an investigator with uh, State Special Prosecutor's Office, and my my office was up Tower Two, the South Tower. So I was very familiar with the complex, and of course, had been there many times uh, during my FBI career. Maxwell had been part of the bureau's team investigating the TWA 800 explosion five years earlier. That experience kicked in on 9/11. As I was walking up towards uh, Church Street to, to round uh, World Trade Center 5 building, I saw on the ground uh, an engine cowling from a Boeing aircraft. I, I knew a lot about <laughs> Boeing aircraft parts, having been assigned out to the TWA 800 investigation for over 17 months in the hangar there, reassembling, etc. So I instantaneously knew, you know, putting the two planes having hit the engine cowling, and of course, all the intelligence and the chatter we were, we were aware. Um, I knew right away uh, that he, he, meaning bin Laden, he had gotten us, that this was the attack. Halfway across the country, a young Illinois state senator named Barack Obama was on his way to a hearing in downtown Chicago. 
He was in his car on Lakeshore Drive when he heard the first reports of a plane hitting the World Trade Center on the radio. State Senator Obama was not a figure on the national stage yet, so the national media wasn't calling to get his statement about the attacks. Eight days later, he would give a nuanced, detailed statement to his local newspaper, the Hyde Park Herald. Here's an excerpt, quote, Even as I hope for some measure of peace and comfort to the bereaved families, I must also hope that we as a nation draw some measure of wisdom from this tragedy. Later on, he continues, quote, We must also engage, however, in the more difficult task of understanding the sources of such madness. At the time, he could not have imagined how the events of that day and its consequences would come to define his political career. On the other side of the world, former National Security Council official Stephen Simon was riding in a London taxi when he heard the first reports of the attack. I was in the back seat of a London taxi, a black cab, and I just the driver had the radio on, and I heard the the report about the just a very sketchy report uh, from uh, from the news broadcaster that a plane had crashed into the the World Trade Center, but it looked like a, a terrible accident, and I and I just started a ricochet around the the sides of the cab, you know, bouncing up and down and saying that that motherfucker, he did it. He did it. And the, the cab driver turned around and looked at me like I was insane. Um, uh, but uh, no, I didn't, I, I, I didn't hesitate for a bit. That, 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 that analysis came, you know, direct from, from my subconscious. And, and then, and then, Seconds later, the broadcaster said, well, a second plane um, uh, had uh, had impacted uh, uh, one of the towers. And, and of course, then then I was sure. Back in New York City, federal prosecutor David Kelly was in his office a few blocks away from the World Trade Center when the attacks began. I was in my office at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, about four blocks north of the Trade Center. Is that a federal? Is that the Twenty Six Federal Plaza building? Across the street from it. What do you remember about that I was, morning? I was uh, heard a big boom. Um, went to look to see what had happened. Mary Jo White, a U.S. attorney, called me to say a plane had struck the Trade Center. That Barry Mon, the, the head of the FBI in New York, um, was waiting for me outside, and we were to go down to the tower, which we did. Barry and I ran down there. Um, I was there within, you know, eight, nine minutes of the first plane hitting. Um, we coordinated with the F, excuse me, with uh, the NYPD, the fire department. Um, and um, we, in the course of that, we were outside the, the North Tower. And um, as we were conferring, somebody comes and tells us that a second plane is coming, which we didn't even know what we had yet. You know, we weren't sure, you know, people say a plane hit, um, you know, you can see bodies showering down from the trade center, but you didn't know what kind of, was this an accident or was this an intentional act? Um, was this a, was this a small plane or was this a jetliner? We didn't know. Um, and then they said a second plane is coming. And, and the next thing we heard was a huge roar. And so the plane hit the second tower. Uh, they called that caused everybody to disperse. Um, and we had taken over a 
in office. When I say we, the FBI, Joint Terrorist Task Force, had taken over a um, office on the ground floor, I think it was Morgan Stanley or some brokerage, uh, caddy corner from the, the North Tower of the Trade Center. It's on Church Street. And uh, we, we kind of, we sought refuge there from the debris falling from the second plane hitting. And then Barry and I were on the phone with Washington explaining what was going on. And then um, somebody came, summoned me and Barry to go back um, to meet up again with the police department and the fire department. Over in the neighboring South Tower, some employees, some of whom survived the 1993 bombing, evacuated immediately. Others chose to stay behind and kept working, thinking they were safe because the danger was in the other building. Employees of one company on the 81st floor made it all the way downstairs to the lobby, then promptly returned to their offices when a security officer told them it was safe to go back upstairs. At this point, most people in and out of the towers think that what happened was a freak accident involving a small aircraft. Remember, at that time, most people had cell phones, but social media did not exist. Smartphones like BlackBerry were still in their infancy and were not in widespread use. The iPhone was still six years away. Some people had pagers. Texting was still a relatively new technology that wasn't available on all cell phones. With limited phone reception, there were few options for people in the building to get intelligence from the outside once they left their desks. It generally came from the news media, the telephones, the internet, and word of mouth. People were getting contradictory instructions to evacuate or remain in place from the PA system, from building security, from emergency dispatchers, and their co-workers over the course of the 17 minutes between 8.46 and 9.03. All of them were unknowingly making life-or-death decisions, often on the basis of inaccurate or incomplete information. Ultimately, many of those on the upper floors who chose to stay behind after the North Tower was hit paid with their lives. Port Authority police gave the order to evacuate everyone from both towers at 8.59. At about the same time, one of the fire chiefs gave the same order to the World Trade Center's fire safety director. At 9.02, an evacuation order was broadcast in the South Tower by a Port Authority fire safety employee. By that point, it was too little, too late. 17 minutes after the first plane hit the North Tower and 4 minutes after the Port Authority Police Department gave the order to evacuate, anyone who was in Lower Manhattan that morning, or who had access to a television, saw United 175 coming from New Jersey to the southwest, fly across Hudson Bay, and crash into the south side of the South Tower at 9.03 a.m. Eastern Time. It was the most shocking moment on live television since Jack Ruby shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald 38 years earlier. Here's how the attack played out live on the Today Show. Have you seen any any evidence, Elliot, of, of people being taken out of the building? You say that emergency vehicles are there, understandably so, but of course the major concern is Human oh loss. I mean, do you know if there were many people in the building? Oh, another time? one just hit. Something else just hit. A very large plane just oh. flew directly over my building, and there's been another collision. Can you see it? I yes. can yes. see it on this shot. Oh, my. Something else has you just... You know what? We just saw a like plane circling the building. We just saw a plane circling the building a second ago on the shot right before I that. I think there may have been another impact. Can you tell? I just heard another very loud bang and a very large plane that might have been... a. DC-9 or a 747 just flew past my window, and I think it may have hit the Trade Center again. 
22 minutes earlier at 8.41 a.m., the FAA's New York Center received this transmission from the pilot on United 175. This transmission is significant for two reasons. First, the pilot on United 175 heard Mohammed Atta's message to the passengers on American 11 and relayed this information to the control tower just minutes before hijackers stormed his cockpit and took control of the plane. Second, this was the final transmission from United 175 before it hit the South Tower. At 8.47, just seconds after American 11 crashed into the North Tower, the hijackers on United 175 changed the transponder code twice. The air traffic controller noticed the change four minutes later. This was the first indication they received that something was wrong. The controller made repeated unsuccessful attempts to contact United 175. At 8.55, the controller in charge told the manager she thought United 175 had been hijacked. At 9.01, a manager at New York Center had this exchange with the FAA Command Center in Herndon, Virginia. Uh, we have several situations going on here. It's uh, escalating big, big time. Uh, we need to get the military involved with this. Well, what's going on, Pete? Just get me somebody who has the authority to get military in the air now. We have several situations going on here. It's uh, escalating big, big time. Uh, we need to get the military involved with this. We're, we're involved with something else. We have other aircraft that may have a similar situation going on here. As was the case on American 11, Passengers and crew of United 175 started making phone calls to inform loved ones or the airline of what was happening. At 8.52 a.m., passenger Peter Hansen called his father and explained the situation. His flight had been hijacked, somebody had been stabbed, and he thought the hijackers were in control of the plane. He also said the plane was flying very erratically and that passengers were feeling sick and throwing up. He asked his father to inform United Airlines of the hijacking. At about the same time, a male flight attendant, believed to be Robert Fangman, called from the plane and was put through to the United Maintenance Department. He reported that the flight had been hijacked and that the pilots and a flight attendant had been stabbed. At around 8.55 a.m., United 175 was descending over New Jersey and had a near collision with Delta Airlines Flight 2315 flying from Hartford to Tampa. The two planes flew within about 200 feet of each other. The air traffic controller frantically told the Delta pilot to take any evasive action necessary. At 8.59 a.m., passenger Brian Sweeney tried to contact his wife Julie and left a voicemail on her answering machine. He then called his mother, Louise Sweeney, who described his voice as sounding, quote, somewhat subdued. During the plane's final moments, Peter Hansen was still on the phone with his father. The last words he heard were his son softly saying, Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, and thinks he heard a woman scream. The call went dead at that point. On the 81st floor of the South Tower, Fuji Bank Assistant Vice President Stanley Pramnath was sitting at his desk. Just minutes earlier that morning, after American 11 hit the North Tower, Pramnath decided to evacuate. He was one of 18 Fuji Bank employees, 
including several top executives who took a local elevator down to the 78th floor sky lobby. From there, they got in an express elevator, which took them directly to the lobby. They made it to the ground floor by 8.56 a.m., within 10 minutes after the first plane hit and 7 minutes before the second plane would hit. Once they arrived at the lobby, a security guard told them the building was secure and that they should go back to work. Pranmuth approached Delise, a temporary employee he had brought with him downstairs, and said, Delise, why don't we take the rest of the day off? Delise agreed with his proposition and left immediately. Pranmuth and the others got back in the elevators to go back to their desks. During the write-up, he told the company's human resources director that, quote, it's a good time to take relocation. Everyone went back to their respective floors on the 80th, 81st, and 82nd floors. Now back at his desk, Pramrith was talking to a colleague from Chicago on the phone who called to check on him. By chance, he happened to look out the window toward the Statue of Liberty. At that moment, he saw United 175 at eye level, coming straight at him. He dropped the phone, dove under his desk, and screamed. For reasons unknown, he said, quote, Lord, I can't do this. You take over. On the other end of the line, his horrified colleague in Chicago heard this and saw what happened next on television. At 9.03 a.m., the plane crashed into the South Tower. Listen to this audio of New York air traffic controllers who were tracking United 175 as they saw it crash into the South Tower. Hey, can you look out your window right now? Yeah. Can you, can you see a guy at about 4,000 feet, about 5 east of the airport right now? Looks like he's... Yeah, I see him. You see God, look, is he descending for the building also? He's descending really quick, too, yeah. Well, that's... 2,500 feet now. He just dropped 800 feet in like, a, like one, one sweep. That's, that's another situation. Who, what kind of airplane is that? Can you guys tell? I don't know. I'll read it out in a minute. Another one just hit the building. Wow. Oh another wow. one just hit it hard. Another one just hit the world side. The whole building just uh, came apart. Oh Holy smokes. All right, I guess you guys can be okay. busy. This is a sampling of what firefighters were saying over the radio after the second plane hit the South Tower. Three six to Manhattan, urgent. You have a second plane into the other tower of the tower of the train set of major fire. According to the New York Fire Department, the number of alarms corresponds to, quote, the number and type of units deployed to an incident. As an example, a second alarm in a high-rise building, quote, typically deploys 19 pieces of apparatus and 11 chiefs. As the number of alarms increases, additional resources are deployed, with five alarms being the highest. That morning, the department was responding to two five-alarm fires in both towers of the World Trade Center. A flight path study of United 175 done by the National Transportation Safety Board found that during the five minutes between the plane's final turn toward New York City at 8.58 and the moment of impact at 9.03, 
The plane descended an estimated 24,000 feet. The final radar reading measured the plane's altitude at 1,000 feet, about 362 feet below the top of the South Tower. More precise data is available in this case because United 175 was the only one of the four flights that morning not to turn off its transponder, which kept transmitting until the end. According to Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon's book, The Age of Sacred Terror, United 175 was flying at a speed of 586 miles per hour, far beyond what the aircraft was designed for at that low altitude in normal circumstances, as it would be making its final approach before landing. Keep in mind, the speed limit set by the FAA for planes flying below 10,000 feet is 287 miles per hour. The authors speculate that United 175 was going so fast, if the plane hadn't hit the building, it might have broken up in the air. Like American 11, United 175 hit the building tilted to its left, but at a steeper angle, closer to 45 degrees. The plane hit between the 77th through the 85th floors, near the southeast corner. This meant that some parts of floors in the impact zone withstood the crash relatively intact. Because of this, there was still one working stairwell on the northwest side of the building, the opposite side from where the plane hit. Although it was only accessible as high as the 91st floor, this stairwell allowed a handful of people from the upper floors to escape. According to Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn's book 102 Minutes, each tower only had three stairwells because of a change to the New York City Building Code in 1968, which reduced the required number of stairwells in tall buildings. In comparison, the Empire State Building, which opened in 1931, had as many as nine stairwells, depending on how high up you were in the building. One of those was a fire tower, running the entire height of the building and accessible by a vestibule, which serves as an airlock to keep smoke out. The World Trade Center was not required to have a fire tower. According to the New York Times, only 18 people were known to have escaped from the impact zone or above it inside the South Tower. Four of them were Stanley Prainmouth from Fuji Bank, who was on the 81st floor, along with Brian Clark and his Eurobroker's colleagues Janice Brooks and Rondi Francesco, who were on the 84th floor when the plane hit. But the majority of the small group of survivors were from the 78th floor. According to survivor Keating Crown, there were 200 people in the sky lobby on the 78th floor when United 175 hit. Moments later, only 14 were still alive. Meanwhile, like the passengers on the hijacked planes, people at or above the impact zone in both towers were calling relatives or 911. Some were calling in hopes for a rescue until the very end. Others were calling to say goodbye. Half a world away, FBI agent Ali Sufan had been in Yemen for a week as part of the team that was resuming operations against the Al-Qaeda members who were behind the USS Cole bombing. He was on the phone with his girlfriend back in New York when he got word from another agent of a plane crashing into the World Trade Center. Sufan's girlfriend back home had turned on the TV by this point and told him, quote, The TV is showing smoke coming out of the World Trade Center. She added, Switch on the TV, one of the buildings is on fire. They ended their conversation so Sufan could learn more about what was happening. He called his former mentor, John O'Neill, who he knew had just started his new job at the World Trade Center. The phone rang and eventually went to voicemail. The second plane hit the South Tower moments later. 
He called O'Neill again and got no answer. This time, Sufan left a voicemail. At that point, Sufan went into the new ambassador's office, where the entire FBI team was watching the attacks on live television. After doing a weapons check and a security inspection of the embassy, the entire FBI team sat and waited in a secure conference room and watched the day's events unfold. Eventually, they received a call from headquarters. They were ordered to evacuate Yemen immediately and go to New York. Both towers were able to withstand the impact of each plane and yet ultimately collapsed. How was this possible? Decades earlier, when the buildings were being designed and built, developers had warned of the risk of them being hit by an aircraft. That nightmare scenario had finally come. Believe it or not, there was some opposition to the World Trade Center as it was being built during the 60s. A group called the Committee for a Reasonable World Trade Center took out a full-page ad in the May 2nd, 1968 edition of the New York Times. The ad shows an ominous black-and-white image of the Twin Towers, with a commercial jetliner about to crash into one, 33 years before 9-11. The advertisement argued that the towers were so tall they would interfere with air traffic. Keep in mind that the chairman of the committee was one of the owners of the Empire State Building, which had been the tallest building in Manhattan for decades. The committee's proposed solution was to limit the height of the towers to 900 feet, slightly shorter than the Empire State Building. According to Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn, quote, the pinstripe columns that gave the towers their distinctive look were not simply ornamentation or panic handles for acrophobiacs. They actually held the buildings up. The towers had columns in the central core, but most of every floor was open space. These external pinstripes made the open floors possible by carrying the great weight of the building, running it down to the foundation, into the bedrock, and doing it with strength to spare. The sheer amount of open space was the aesthetic and commercial triumph of the building's design. This allowed the Port Authority to rent out as much as 75% of the space on each floor. This was 21% higher than the best yield from older skyscrapers, which were built subject to older building codes and regulations. The journalists point out that at that height, wind was a bigger issue than gravity. Each building's face was built to absorb a hurricane going 140 miles per hour. Quote, The wind load on an ordinary day was 30 times greater than the force of the airplane that would hit it, they wrote in their book, 102 minutes. Comparatively, each tower had about 1,000 times the mass of the plane that would cause its destruction. Each explosion detonated with a force equal to about 7 million sticks of dynamite. up at 6 a.m. that morning at a tennis resort near Sarasota, Florida, and went to a nearby golf course for a four-mile run, during which he was accompanied by a Secret Service detail. He received his daily intelligence briefing from Michael Morell later that morning. A significant part of the briefing focused on the Israel-Palestine issue, with a second intifada already underway at the time. There was no mention of terrorism in that briefing, Morell would later recall. The president was scheduled to read to a group of students and speak about education later that morning. The president arrived at Emma E. Booker Elementary School just before 9 a.m., within 15 minutes of American 11 hitting the North Tower. Just before his scheduled meeting with a group of second-grade students, 
the president was told by White House advisor Carl Rove that it appeared as though a small twin-engine propeller plane had crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. At the time, the president initially attributed the crash to pilot error. He walked into the classroom and went ahead with the event as originally planned. While White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card watched from the holding room, he was approached by the director of the White House Situation Room, who told him it wasn't a small propeller plane, but a commercial jetliner which had hit the building. Shortly after, the director told him that a second plane had hit the second tower. Faced with the momentous task of informing the president, Card waited for a moment when the president wasn't speaking or interacting with anyone. At 9.05 a.m., Card calmly walked up to him and whispered 11 fateful words into his right ear, quote, A second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. This happened before a room full of second graders and the White House press pool, which filmed the historic moment. The president appeared unsettled when he heard the news, but maintained his poker face and did not betray any immediate response. This is how New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker described the president's reaction to the events unfolding that morning. You've seen the video of of Bush in the classroom, and then Andy Carr famously walks in and, and right. tells him that the United States is under attack. You know, and I and I, I've watched that footage so many times, and it's like you know, it's like the looking at you know trying to describe the Mona Lisa. You know, what's the what's the look on his face, right? Right. You know, I mean, I don't know. How would you describe his reaction? Well, uh, I mean, he's trying to process the information, right? He's he's suddenly been told that what I mean, before he walked in there to, to talk to the students, he knew one plane had hit the one tower. But the assumption was it was some terrible accident. The assumption was it was some freakish, uh, you know, uh, situation, not that it was an intentional uh, uh, attack on America. So when Andy Carr walks in in the middle of this, you know, photo op, so a photo op and whispers in his ear, America's under attack. Bush is just processing. You see, we literally almost see his, his, his brain working at that moment, like, what, what on earth is happening here and how do I respond to this? And he's kind of stuck in this awkward place where in his mind, he doesn't want to suddenly jump up and rush out of the room and, and startle everybody and panic everybody. He can see Ari Fleischer, his press secretary in the back of the room, holding up a piece of paper, a notepad with the words, I think it says something like, you know, don't say anything right now or don't, don't, don't comment right now. In other words, uh, you know, let's talk about this before you say anything. And so he kind of freezes a little bit by by not wanting to to, to upend this uh, uh, this event and, and and look panicked. But the flip side is because he didn't get up and rush out in some sort of dramatic way, it looked like he wasn't um, uh, as decisive as he, of course, uh, genuinely is. And I think that it, you know, obviously, as an image, it hurt him. Um, um, for, for a long, long time, uh, it became kind of a, a moment that would be mocked. But he was just, you know, he was a human being trying to absorb this, this unthinkable information he had just been gotten and trying to figure out what is the right thing to, you know, how do I respond to this in a way that doesn't panic, not just the kids in front of him, but the country as a whole. Uh, and he, he made a choice of, you know, sitting there for a few more minutes while they're reading this book, uh, rather than uh, rush out of the room. Fair to describe him as unsettled. 
Yeah, certainly. Certainly unsettled. Anybody would be. Who wouldn't be, right? Suddenly yeah. Bush, you know, for Bush, this was a transformative moment, obviously. He, this is not the presidency he had expected. We were at a time of seeming peace and prosperity. The Cold War was over. Russia was no longer our enemy. And I think Bush came to office expecting to be a domestic policy president. He wanted to talk about tax cuts and education reform and maybe Medicare and Social Security and immigration. He wasn't expecting to be at war. He certainly wasn't expecting to be at war with these uh, shadowy enemy that he couldn't even see, that he couldn't even figure out what to to do. And I think that um, nothing in his life uh, had explicitly prepared him for something like this. And, And obviously... Uh, you know, he would have no choice but to confront it. And we could say he rose to the occasion in his own way. Uh, but in that moment on that, you know, stage at, in that elementary school, um, you know, his life and the life of the nation had just been transformed. And it, and it, took, a, it took a little bit to, to process. The president stayed in the classroom for another six minutes before excusing himself. In the next few minutes, he spoke with Vice President Dick Cheney and officials in New York. He wrote a quick statement on a yellow legal pad, and at 9.30 a.m., he addressed a shaken nation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a, a difficult moment for America. I, um, unfortunately, will be going back to Washington after my remarks. Secretary of Rod Pace and Lieutenant Governor will take the podium and discuss education. I do want to thank the folks here at, uh, at the Booker Elementary School for their hospitality. Uh, Today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the vice president, to the governor of New York, to the director of the FBI, and I've ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families and and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much. At 9.30, the president, his entourage, and the traveling press pool went straight to Air Force One. Back in Washington a few minutes later, Secret Service agents burst into the vice president's office to evacuate him. They had been alerted of another plane heading in the direction of the White House, possibly American 77 or United 93. Vice President Cheney was taken to the Presidential Emergency Operations Center. The bunker built several stories underneath the east wing of the White House. The bunker dated back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency and was turned into a bomb shelter in the aftermath of the Pearl Harbor attack. According to New York Times reporter Peter Baker's book Days of Fire, the plane was wheels up at 9.54. The pilots wanted, quote, to get as high as possible as quickly as possible, settling into a cruising altitude of 45,000 feet. The initial plan was to fly straight back to Washington. However, Because of a reported threat to Air Force One, the Secret Service and the Vice President urged against it. The President eventually agreed. At 10.10, with the plane already in the air, it turned around and headed west, destination unknown. Within 10 minutes, the President's military aide found a suitable option, Barksdale Air Force Base, just outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. 
The plan was to take the president to a secure location where he could address the nation, the pilots could refuel the aircraft, and the Secret Service could reduce the size of the traveling party. Air Force One arrived at Barksdale at 11.45. The president pre-recorded a videotaped message to the country. It was not delivered live as a security precaution. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. I want to reassure the American people that full, the full resources of the federal government are working to assist local authorities to save lives and to help the victims of these attacks. Make no mistake, the United States will hunt down and punish those responsible for these cowardly acts. The president's second speech wasn't much longer than his first, two minutes and eight seconds, compared to one minute and 23 seconds back in Florida, while the attacks were still happening in real time. While Air Force One was still in the air heading to Louisiana, at 10.18 a.m., after a conversation between President Bush and Vice President Cheney, the Vice President gave the order authorizing fighter jets to shoot down any hijacked aircraft to the National Military Command Center. Listen to this transmission from Needs, that's the Northeast Air Defense Sector, 13 minutes later, at 10.31 a.m. Vice President has cleared us to intercept tracks. Okay. Shoot them down if they do not respond first on RCC. Let's backpedal to look at the timing and sequence of events that morning in closer detail. After United 93 went down at 10.03, the threat was over, although nobody in the government, air traffic control, or the public at large knew it at the time. Remember, President Bush was still on Air Force One at that point, and Vice President Cheney was holed up in the bunker beneath the White House East Wing. With the benefit of hindsight, we now know that this was a moot gesture. At the time of Bush and Cheney's conversation at 10.18, the attacks had been over for 15 minutes. The officials in the bunker first received word of an incoming aircraft, now known to be United 93, at 10.02. Although United 93 would go down a minute later, according to the 9-11 Commission report, a military aide tells Vice President Cheney between 10.10 and 10.15 that the aircraft was 80 miles away. The vice president is asked for authority to engage the aircraft. Cheney's chief of staff, Louis Scooter Libby, described his boss's reaction as quick and decisive. In Libby's telling to the 9-11 Commission, quote, in about the time it takes a batter to decide to swing. At some point between 10-12 and 10-18, Vice President Cheney gives the authorization to engage the airliner meaning that American military pilots had permission to shoot down a commercial jet with civilian passengers on board. Vice President Cheney told the 9-11 Commission he based this authorization on an earlier conversation with President Bush. Here's where the story gets tricky. According to the 9-11 Commission, phone logs show there was a two-minute conversation between President Bush and Vice President Cheney at 10:18. White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer's handwritten notes of the day show that the president authorized the shoot-down at 10.20. In other words, both sources have the call happening after Cheney had already given the authorization to shoot down the plane. Why is this controversial? First, it would appear that Cheney made the decision unilaterally in the heat of the moment, and then decided to clean it up later. 
Second, you'll recall that Cheney is one of the most experienced men to ever hold the office of vice president. His most recent government post before the vice presidency was as secretary of defense. In other words, he was comfortable giving life or death orders to the military. Beyond this, there is a bigger question about the validity of Cheney's shoot-down order. In the American system of government, the vice president has no role in the military chain of command. The president gives the orders, which trickle down from the secretary of defense and the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, to the appropriate soldiers who will be tasked with carrying them out. Here's New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker. The vice president has no formal role in the military chain of command. Uh, what happened here and why was it so significant? Well, it's so significant because, of course, Dick Cheney is in the bunker at the White House, the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, while Bush is on Air Force One uh, flying around the country. And, and Cheney, by dint of his experience and, and personality, sort of takes command there uh, in that room, seeking information, um, uh, you know, issuing orders, making sure that uh, everybody is uh, uh, doing the things that they need to do. Um, he has no, you're right, he doesn't have the authority as vice president as long as the president is, is, is you know, uh, in charge and, 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 and conscious to be giving orders like uh, a shoot down order. Now, what they would tell you is that he only did so after consulting with the president. In fact, he was conveying an order that President Bush had given him by, uh, you know, by phone from Air Force One. Now, there's some dispute about that. There are, you know, witness and, and, and phone log uh, uh, records you know, create some doubt as to whether they spoke before Cheney issued the order, only after Cheney issued the order. Uh, and, but it's a significant question because it does, you know, in this moment of crisis, in this moment of, of, of national emergency, we want the government to respond both decisively, but also within uh, the framework that we have created for it. And it's not supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, an ad hoc uh, venture. We want it to to, to perform as we have designed it to perform. But again, Bush being out of pocket on the plane, which was, you know, he was in touch, but the communications were poor. Um, and, it, and it's just obviously more difficult in, a, in that kind of circumstance to, to be commanding an event of this type. And, and Cheney, in effect, uh, uh, you know, filled that vacuum back in the White House. Was the president set? Was he what? Was a precedent set. A precedent was- set. Well, I mean, in a way, but I mean, because the official version of the event is that the president actually had given the order to Cheney that he then conveyed, whether we, whatever doubts we may or may not have with that, if that's the official um, uh, version of events, then you can argue that no precedent has been set for anything other than a president being responsible for, for doing that. You know what I mean? The Secret Service and the vice president still thought it wasn't safe for the president to return to Washington. Air Force One's next destination was Ofut Air Force Base, on the outskirts of Omaha, Nebraska. According to the 9-11 Commission, this base was chosen, quote, because of its elaborate command and control facilities, and because it could accommodate overnight lodging for 50 persons. The Secret Service wanted a place where the President could spend several days if necessary. Air Force One arrived at 2.50 p.m., and within 25 minutes, the president was having a meeting with his advisors via secure video teleconference. He began the meeting with the words, quote, we're at war. CIA Director George Tenet said the agency was still assessing who was responsible, but that early signs pointed to Al-Qaeda. 
The U.S. government was able to piece together the identities of the culprits almost immediately, according to journalists Terry McDermott and Josh Meyer. The first hints came from the flight attendants on the planes that morning, who identified the seat numbers of the hijackers on each flight in their phone calls. Authorities then checked the names associated with the seats on the passenger manifests. Three hijackers in particular raised red flags almost immediately, Khalid Al-Midar, Nawaf Al-Hazmi, and his brother Salim Al-Hazmi, who were on American 77. Remember, almost 18 months earlier, Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi had been staked out by Malaysian intelligence in Kuala Lumpur, and the CAA knew that both men had U.S. visas and that Nawaf Al-Hazmi had flown to Los Angeles on January 15, 2000. This was covered in episodes 5, 6, and 7. The two of them had lived openly in San Diego and were listed by their real names in the local phone book. None of this information was shared with the State Department or the FBI at the time. Even more confounding was the fact that Almidar had left the United States to return to Yemen for several months before returning to the United States for the last time in July of 2001. The CAA had not placed him on a terrorist watch list until August 23rd. It should be noted that Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar rented a room in a house in San Diego from an FBI informant. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, he did not see anything unusual enough in the behavior of Hazmi or Midar to prompt him to report to his law enforcement contacts, nor did those contacts ask him for information about his tenants slash housemates. Another clue came from electronic surveillance of Al-Qaeda associates. It revealed congratulatory messages being relayed back and forth amongst themselves. Another big lead inadvertently came from Mohammed Atta himself. On the morning of 9-11, he arrived at the airport in Portland, Maine, just 15 minutes before his flight was scheduled to take off. He got on the plane, but his two checked bags did not. Because of this, they were not transferred onto American 11 in Boston, where his intention presumably was that their contents would be destroyed during the attacks. According to McDermott and Meyer, Otto's bags were discovered later in the day on 9-11 at Logan International Airport in Boston. Quote, Atta had left a record of virtually his entire life in them. Included were his last will and testament, his college diploma, and transcripts from both Cairo University, where he obtained his undergraduate degree, and Technical University of Hamburg-Harburg, where he did his graduate work. Finally, the authors also note that the hijackers left behind rental cars filled with paperwork and fingerprints at three different airport parking garages. All this evidence helped the government determine Al-Qaeda's culpability fairly quickly. Back on the teleconference, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld put the armed forces at DEFCON 3. DEFCON stands for Defense Condition and is ranked on a scale of 1 through 5, with 5 being the lowest and 1 being the highest. DEFCON 3 is described by the Federation of American Scientists as, quote, increase in force readiness above normal readiness. For historical perspective, U.S. military forces went to DEFCON 2, the second highest level, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. 9-11 was the highest DEFCON level since the Yom Kippur War in 1973. While the initial evidence pointed toward Al-Qaeda, it didn't take long for some in the administration to mention the subject of Iraq. During a meeting at the Pentagon five hours after the attacks, Rumsfeld floated the idea of attacking Iraq. This is from a Pentagon aide's notes of the meeting, quote, Best info fast. 
Judge whether good enough hit SH at same time, not only UBL. SH is a reference to Saddam Hussein. UBL was Osama bin Laden's initials in the national security community, where his first name is spelled Osama with a U. Several hours later, the president overruled his advisors and ordered the pilots to go back to Washington. Air Force One landed at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, and the president was flown back to the White House on Marine One. On the way back, the presidential helicopter flew over the burning Pentagon on the other side of the Potomac River. At 8.30 p.m., more than 14 hours after his day had started in Sarasota, Florida, the President of the United States addressed a traumatized nation from the Oval Office. Just as he had during the taped address from Barksdale earlier in the day, he struck a careful balancing act of simultaneously comforting the American people and showing resolve to hunt down the people responsible. Today our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. President Bush addressed the nation three times during that chaotic, historic day. How do these speeches compare to others he would deliver during his presidency? Here's Peter Baker. What did you think about the substance and the style of what he was saying? And was it the the right tone and approach for the moment? Well, you know, what his own people would say was that it was not his best... uh, uh, best moment that that he, you know, uh, he he the first comments he make at the school uh, are interesting in the sense that he uses the phrase "this will not stand," which echoes his father's phrase after Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. He says later that that was just not intentional; that was just uh, uh, happenstance. But it was actually interesting in that sense. But the, the fact that he was perceived as flying around the country as if as if spooked by the event and unable to return to Washington, while deeply frustrating to him on the plane, was also unsettling to the country. And and a lot of his aides were very unhappy about this because it didn't present the image of decisive leadership that they wanted. So they did uh, put together this address in the Oval Office for him to give when he got back to the White House finally. But people later called it the awful office address. They did not like it. They did not think it uh, it rose to the moment. Uh, He had later moments in that week where he would but in that particular moment, um, it, it did not uh, uh, fit the occasion as his own aides uh, wanted it to. He did, though, set out a pretty important benchmark in that Oval Office address at the end of the day, which, which would define the rest of his presidency, which we said, basically, it's not enough to go after the terrorists themselves. We're going to go after them who harbor uh, the terrorists, anybody who helps and aids and, and, and harbors them, which, of course, is a doctrine of, of what is to come in terms of the war on terrorism. Um, and so we, while it didn't convey the message that they wanted to convey on that particular day, uh, it did plant the seeds for the doctrine that was to come. It's interesting you mentioned that from a, a communications perspective. The, the Oval Office address wasn't as, as well received as they would have hoped or received or delivered, let's, let's be honest. But compare that to, say, the address at Ground Zero, which was completely improvised, and everyone went crazy in a yeah. good way. 
No, I by, mean, compare by, those two. Yeah, exactly. By September 14th, three days later on Friday in New York, when he's visiting uh, Ground Zero, it's his instinctive, unscripted response that changes his image, that changes his profile as the leader of the country in this moment of crisis. And he wasn't supposed to speak at all. He was just there to visit and he was uh, wandering through the wreckage and uh, and people were calling out. They wanted him to say something. They wanted to hear from their president. And they go, his aides go up to him and say, you know, they want to hear from you. And they get him a bullhorn and he climbs up on top of this fire truck and he's trying to speak. And of course, the famous, you know, we can't hear you. And he responds the way he does. And the, and it's, it's such a moment of... Um, uh, defiance and determination that it uh, inspires not just people in the in the in the crowd there but across across the country of course republicans and democrats and and this is the leader that we wanted and needed in that moment um and he also gave a, a very good effective speech at the cathedral that same day uh where he says you know we will respond in a time and hour of our choosing uh, but makes clear that we will respond. And it's a, it's that, that speech as well, where uh, he sits down afterwards and his father reaches across, uh, you know, uh, to, to shake his hand, uh, you know, in the pews afterwards to give him that comfort and, 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 and to tell him he's done a good job. It's so effective, so affecting and human. Uh, and it's, you, you see on that day, Bush begin to, to get his feet planted and to, to, uh, um, uh, you know, become the leader he now needs to be. Back in Manhattan, according to journalists Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn, there were 14,154 people inside both towers of the World Trade Center that morning, an average of about 64 per floor. Most of them had just gotten in for the start of their workday. If the attacks had happened later on in the morning, there might have been more people in the building, and consequently, more casualties. A different clock had begun when American 11 crashed into the North Tower. Everyone inside, employees, visitors, police officers, firefighters, paramedics, first responders, had 102 minutes to do whatever they were going to do that fateful morning. A second clock began after United 175 hit the South Tower, giving everyone inside 56 minutes. Not everyone survived. Jules Nade and the firefighters dropped the gas leak they were initially investigating and headed straight for the World Trade Center. They arrived within four minutes of the crash. Nade kept filming and managed to get extraordinary footage from inside the towers amidst all the chaos, horror, and death. Because of gravity, Jet fuel had made its way down the building through the elevator shafts and reached ground level. The ensuing blast had taken out many of the windows in the lobby. Some of the initial victims to die or be evacuated were burn victims caused by the fuel. Police officers and firefighters from all over the city were rushing to the scene. According to the CBS News program 60 Minutes, there are 217 firehouses in the greater New York metropolitan area. 121 engines, 62 ladder companies, 100 ambulances, and 750 firefighters answered the call that morning. According to Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn, because of the sheer size of the impact zone and subsequent fires, the firefighters knew as soon as they arrived that they would not be able to put the fire out. 
The fires were spread out over multiple floors at the highest levels of the building. It was a matter of basic logistics. No fire hose or ladder could go up that high, meaning that the only water firefighters had was whatever they could carry with them. The priorities were rescue and evacuation of survivors, putting out fires as necessary, but letting the whole thing burn itself out over time, time that they didn't know they would not have. Then there was the matter of transportation. Assuming most of the building's elevators were destroyed or disabled, this meant that even to get to the lowest area of the impact zone on the 93rd floor of the North Tower, they would probably have to take the stairs all the way up. According to the Naudet Brothers documentary 9-11, a firefighter wearing full gear takes about one minute to climb a flight of stairs. At that rate, it would take them at least an hour and a half just to get to the 93rd floor. One of the fire chiefs to arrive that day, who had been called to the World Trade Center for the 1993 bombing eight years earlier, had written about that experience, quote, Without elevators, sending companies to upper floors and large high-rise buildings is measured in hours, not minutes. Also complicating matters was the fact that the outdated handheld radios they were using had spotty reception, if any. This made communication, coordination, and intelligence sharing between the firefighters in the stairwells and their commanders on the ground difficult, if not impossible. At around 9 a.m., only minutes before United 175 hit the South Tower, the Federal Aviation Authority, United Airlines, and American Airlines were realizing that they were dealing with an unprecedented emergency, coordinated hijackings on multiple aircraft. At 9.03, 17 minutes after the first plane hit the North Tower, the first responders' job had just doubled. More than a thousand were deployed for what was the largest rescue operation in the history of New York City. One firefighter in the lobby of the North Tower was quoted as saying, We may not live through today. After the second plane hit, the initial speculation about this being an accident began to give way to a horrifying, more sinister possibility. This was a deliberate act of terrorism. One person inside the towers that morning who would have known this all too well was John O'Neill. He had accepted the position of Director of Security at the World Trade Center on August 16th. After 25 years of service, he retired from the FBI on August 22nd and started his new job the next day. Although he was moving on to a new chapter in his life, Al-Qaeda was never far from his mind. O'Neill's friend, journalist Chris Isham, would later recall a chilling conversation they had in which O'Neill predicted terrorists would come back and attack the World Trade Center again. On the night of September 10th, he told another friend, quote, we're due and we're due for something big. His alarming and ultimately accurate predictions didn't stop him from recruiting another FBI colleague to join him at the World Trade Center. Here's Ken Maxwell. I met with John on the Friday evening before 9-11 uh, he had approached me to um, become his deputy director of security at the Trade Center. And he knew I was looking to retire. I had two, my kids were in college at the same time in very expensive universities. And I didn't want to leave the bureau. It was, it was my, uh, my vocation, my love. But, you know, I had some financial uh, uh, obligations that were creeping up on me. So, uh, you know, I was actively looking uh, at a second career opportunity. So anyway, John pitched me and um, we met on that Friday. I'd spoken with my wife, who's also a retired FBI agent, and, and uh, you know, he made a generous offer and I agreed to take the job. So we met, had a couple of drinks 
I walked him to his car that evening. We shook hands and he said, Kenny, I'll call you next week to come over and sign the papers. And I told him that, yeah, I'll start the process on my end. And in terms of notifying the bureau that I was going to retire. In fact, Monday morning, I had my secretary start to pull the appropriate forms that you have to you know, put in for retirement. And I uh, started filling them out that evening when I got home Monday night. And I put them in my briefcase, put them in the trunk of uh, my bureau car. And of course, as a first responder on that morning, I parked my car right there, uh, just uh, just east of the North Tower on VC Street there. And my car was found uh, months later in the Staten Island landfill. Didn't look anything like a car. And, and of course, the, those papers uh, went up in flames. Uh, we, John and I had agreed that my starting date would be on or about uh, October 1st. So, yeah, uh, that's that's the last uh, conversation and oh. meeting that I had with John. O'Neill had been on the job for 20 days by 9-11. He was in his office on the 34th floor of the South Tower when American 11 crashed into the building at 8.46. Upon hearing the news of the attacks on the World Trade Center, Many of his friends and former colleagues in the government tried to get in touch with him. One was his former protege Ali Soufan, who attempted to call him from the field in Yemen, where he was investigating the USS Cole bombing. O'Neill had worked late on his last day at the Bureau to sign the papers to relaunch the Cole investigation before he retired. O'Neill didn't pick up the phone, so Soufan left the voicemail. O'Neill was able to page his former Department of Justice colleague Fran Townsend after the second plane hit. He told her that he was okay. This was the last time she heard from him. According to O'Neill biographer Murray Weiss, he tried calling Pat Patterson, an FBI agent who had served with him in Yemen during the coal investigation. At the time, they had argued over whether the Twin Towers would be attacked again. Patterson's wife answered his cell phone, which he had left at home that fateful morning. O'Neill said he would try again later, but never did. Patterson's wife later recalled, quote, I believe he was calling to say I told you so. He was last seen at 9.49 a.m. in the North Tower, heading to the tunnel leading to the South Tower. He would probably be dead within 10 minutes. His body was discovered by firefighters 10 days later in a stairwell under a pile of debris at the corner of Liberty and Greenwich Street. The theory, according to an NYPD officer, was that he had been making his way up to his office on the 34th floor when the South Tower collapsed. This would explain why his body was found closer to the surface of the debris pile than the first responders who had been in the lobby. The man who had spent years chasing Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda all over the world had become a victim of his longtime nemesis. An unknown number of people inside the buildings were killed, probably instantly, when the plane struck. Those who were lucky enough to be below the impact zones generally evacuated. According to ABC News, there were an estimated 2,000 people in both towers at or above the impact zones. They would have choices to make, none of them good. Some waited for help, having punched out the windows to get fresh air from outside. Some chose to remain on the affected floors. At least one person in the South Tower went up from a lower point of the impact zone to help others evacuate. Some went upstairs in an effort to get to the roof, but the doors were locked. Others decided to end their lives by jumping as the world watched in horror. 
The first fire department casualty that morning was killed by a jumper as he was heading into the South Tower. The 9-11 Museum estimates that between 50 and 200 people jumped or fell from the towers that morning. In the North Tower, evidence suggests the building's three emergency stairwells became impassable above the 92nd floor. This cut off any evacuation attempt for the people who were on the uppermost floors. No one at or above the impact zone in the North Tower survived. The Security Command Center on the 22nd floor of the North Tower activated a lock release order at approximately 9.30 that morning. The idea was that the computerized software in the building would unlock all the doors, granting access to every area of the World Trade Center complex, including the roof. But because the system was damaged by the impact of the plane, the lock release order did not work. About 200 miles south of New York City, American Airlines Flight 77 took off from Dulles International Airport at 8.20 a.m. that morning. The hijackers took over the plane between 8.51 and 8.54. A few minutes after, Mohammed Atta crashed American 11 into the North Tower. At 8.56, American 77's transponder was turned off, and air traffic control lost primary radar contact with the plane. Shortly after the hijackers took over, American 77 turned south, somewhere over the region where the state borders of West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio intersect, and then turned back around to where it came from, Washington, D.C. One of the passengers on American 77 was attorney and conservative media pundit Barbara Olson. She called her husband, Ted Olson, the Solicitor General of the United States, the third highest-ranking official in the U.S. Department of Justice. They spoke for a few minutes, and she told him what little information she could report that her flight had been hijacked, that the hijackers had knives and box cutters, and that the passengers had been ordered to the back of the plane. She wasn't even supposed to be on American 77 that morning. She had been booked for a guest appearance on comedian Bill Maher's TV show, Politically Incorrect, and was originally scheduled to fly out on September 10th. But because her husband's birthday was on Tuesday, September 11th, she wanted to be with him for his birthday dinner on Monday night. That was why she booked a ticket on the doomed flight. This audio is from a conversation between a military cargo plane that had eyes on American 77 and air traffic controllers at Reagan National Airport. He's about Washington, this is Gopher 06. Gopher 06, guys. Yes, sir, that aircraft is down. He's in our 12 o'clock position. Uh, looks like it's just to the uh, northwest of the airfield at this time, sir. Gopher 86, thank you. Descent and maintain 2000. Located just across the Potomac River from downtown Washington, D.C., the Pentagon is one of the largest office buildings in the world. It has been home to the U.S. Department of Defense since 1943. It was built over the course of two years with the intention of consolidating all of the offices of the War Department under one roof before they were scattered across 17 different facilities in the Washington area. Believe it or not, groundbreaking for the Pentagon took place on September 11, 1941, 60 years to the day before 9-11. In the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, completion of the Pentagon became a national priority, with thousands of people working around the clock. 
Within eight months of groundbreaking, then-Secretary of War Henry Stimson relocated his office to the new building, which was still under construction. It was finished in January of 1943, at a cost of $83 million. This price tag amounts to almost $1.3 billion today when adjusted for inflation. Here are some numbers to provide a sense of the scope and size of the building. According to the Department of Defense, more than 26,000 employees work there. The building has three times the floor space of the Empire State Building, totaling more than 3.7 million square feet of office space. It also has a combined 17.5 miles worth of corridors. The U.S. Capitol Building could fit in any of the building's five wedge-shaped sections that make up the corners. Listen to NBC's Chief Pentagon Correspondent Jim Miklaszewski calmly break the unnerving news live on the Today Show that the building has just been hit. Katie, I don't want to alarm anybody right now, but apparently there, it, it felt just a few moments ago like there was an explosion of some kind here at the Pentagon. At 9.37 a.m., American 77 crashed into the Pentagon, hitting its west side at 530 miles per hour. All 64 people on board were killed, in addition to 125 people inside the building. The only video of the crash was captured by a security camera outside of the building. There were an estimated 22,000 people inside the Pentagon that morning. A flight path study of American 77 done by the National Transportation Safety Board found that it descended an estimated 18,000 feet on autopilot between 922 and 929 before leveling off at approximately 7,000 feet. At that point, the autopilot was disengaged and the plane held that altitude for about five minutes before beginning its final descent, leading up to the moment of impact at 9.37. Ten miles northwest of the Pentagon, CIA headquarters was a flurry of activity. Remember Kofor Black, who was the CIA chief of station in Khartoum that Bin Laden tried to have assassinated back in 1994? Fast forward seven years later, on the morning of 9-11, he was the director of the CIA's counter-terror center, known colloquially as CTC. Kofor Black's tenure as CIA chief of station in Sudan was previously covered in episode 2. The history of CTC was previously covered in episode 5. CIA Director George Tenet had gone out to breakfast that morning with former Senator David Boren. They were meeting at the St. Regis Hotel, across the river in downtown Washington, D.C., at 8.30 a.m. The two men had a long personal and professional history together. In his memoir, Tenet wrote that Senator Boren, quote, had plucked me from obscurity in 1987 to serve as Chief of Staff of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which he chaired. I looked forward, as I always do, to getting together with him that morning. Within a few minutes, the head of Tenet's security detail would interrupt the meeting twice to inform him of the attacks in New York. Tenet excused himself and went straight back to Langley. By coincidence, Tenet notes in his memoir that Lieutenant General Mahmoud Ahmed, the head of ISI, Pakistan's military intelligence service, happened to be in Washington that morning where he was meeting with Senator Lindsey Graham and Congressman Porter Goss, who was the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and would later be Tenet's successor as CIA director. ISI's role in the years leading up to 9-11 was previously covered in Episode 2. 
After the attacks, the ISI and the Pakistani government as a whole would become a crucial but unreliable ally in the fight against Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. On 9-11, George Tenet wanted to order the evacuation of all personnel at Langley. You'll recall that several years earlier, CIA headquarters was considered as one of the potential targets in the Bajinka plot, which was the conceptual predecessor to the 9-11 attacks. The Bajinka plot was previously covered in Episode 3. That morning, Kofor Black convinced Tenet to exempt his people working at the Global Response Center because they were needed the most during a crisis like this, in spite of the possible threats to their safety. According to Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War, Tenet said, quote, Well, they could die. To which Black responded, quote, Sir, then they're just going to have to die. They would remain in place while everyone else in the building was evacuated. CTC analysts Barbara Sood and Cynthia Storr recall that decision. That was really very interesting. You know, you in a business, you get a warning on your computer screen. Well, it said, everyone evacuate CIA building except CTC. You know, we, when we thought about it later, wait a minute, this is all your experienced people on terrorism. You're leaving them in the building. And I'm, I have my, my seats at the back of the building, you know, against the wall. And I was thinking, you know, when we first, when I, before I wrote those talking points, I told my boss, let me go to the restroom because I don't want to have to go when I'm trapped in the rubble. Then I just looked over the cubicle wall in time to see the second plane hit. And I'm like, that's Al-Qaeda. That's it. We're going to war. We're done. Told everybody to call their families. And I called my priest and asked him to activate my call list because I knew I wasn't going to have time to spend on the phone. Yeah. And then I think it was Kofor Block who convinces George Tenet to leave, evacuate the building except CTC, right? Yeah, except CTC. And um, I was one of the, maybe I, maybe I was the only person, I don't know, but I was like, guys, we still got planes in the air. They, one of their plots from the Philippines, from Bojinka was fly a plane in the CIA headquarters. So why don't we evacuate until the planes are out of the air? Because if, because if we got hit, we were it. We were like the world experts on Al Qaeda. <laughs> Let's get the hell out of here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It would have yeah. been Pearl Harbor. Meanwhile, not far from the Pentagon, Reagan National Airport warned the Secret Service at 9.34 a.m. that an unknown aircraft was headed in the direction of the White House. At 9.45, the Secret Service ordered the immediate evacuation of all personnel on the White House grounds. The U.S. Capitol building was also evacuated at the time. Back at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, a handful of senior officials, including the Vice President and the National Security Advisor, chose to stay behind, having locked themselves in the White House Situation Room or in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, a bunker in the East Wing. White House terrorism czar Richard Clark invoked continuity of government, a contingency protocol left over from the Cold War in which administration officials were relocated to secure sites during a national emergency. According to Clark, it was also designed to, quote, devolve power in case the president or members of the cabinet were killed. With few exceptions, the head or deputy of each agency was evacuated to his or her designated safe site. A helicopter was sent to evacuate Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert, who was second in the government line of succession after the vice president. With talk of a plane approaching the White House, one staffer in the Situation Room asked everyone who was staying to sign their names on a legal pad. 
He typed the list of names into an email and sent it out so the rescue teams would know how many bodies to look for. Between 9.05 and 9.10, American and United Airlines ordered the grounding of all their planes that were still in the air. At 9.42 a.m., a few minutes after American 77 crashed into the Pentagon, the FAA took the unprecedented step of grounding all aircraft flying over or coming into the United States. The decision would affect 3,300 commercial aircraft and 1,200 private planes, which were ordered to land at airports across the United States and Canada. It took almost two and a half hours until the last plane landed. Incoming international flights to the United States soon learned that they would not be allowed to enter American airspace. Depending on where they were in their voyage, some planes were able to turn around and return to their point of origin, or land at another airport, but many of those who had flown across the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans were forced to land in Canada. More than 250 aircraft carrying an estimated 44,000 passengers were forced to land at one of 15 Canadian airports between Vancouver in the west and St. John's in the east. Of these, 38 planes carrying nearly 6,600 passengers landed in Gander, Newfoundland, a population of barely 10,000. People interested in this angle of the story should read Jim DeFeed's book, The Day the World Came to Town. At 9.53 a.m., the National Security Agency picked up a phone call made by an Osama bin Laden associate in Afghanistan, reporting he, quote, heard good news and suggested that a fourth attack was imminent. This message wasn't translated or relayed to the Department of Defense until after the attacks were over. At the time, there was media reporting and speculation that more flights were unaccounted for or believed to have been hijacked. Ultimately, with the benefit of hindsight, we now know that during all that time, there was only one hijacked plane still unaccounted for. United Airlines Flight 93 took off from Newark Liberty International Airport in Newark, New Jersey at 8.42 a.m., four minutes before American 11 crashed into the North Tower. Like the other three hijacked planes that day, it was a cross-country flight, the only one of the four bound for San Francisco, California. There are several other factors which differentiate United 93 from the other three hijacked planes. United 93 was the last of the four to take off that morning, more than 25 minutes late from its intended departure time. It was also the only one to have four hijackers, while the other three had five each. The United 93 hijackers didn't take over the plane until 9.28, 46 minutes after takeoff. At that time, a conversation between the Cleveland Air Traffic Controller and American Airlines Flight 1060 picked up audio of what sounds like the hijacking in progress on United 93. Moments later, there is the muffled sound of someone screaming what sounds like, we're all going to die in here. United 93, that traffic three is one o'clock, 12 miles eastbound 370. I just saying it looked like he descended there. So. United 93, verify 350. United 93, Cleveland. 
Go ahead, Frankie. You have United 93 south of Chardon. We hear some funny noises. We're trying to get him. Do you okay. have him? No. Thank you. United 93, Cleveland. United 1523, did you hear your company, uh, did you hear uh, some interference on the frequency here uh, a couple of minutes ago, screaming? Yes, I did, 797, and uh, I, we couldn't tell what it was either. Okay. United 93, Cleveland, if you hear the center right then. American uh, 1060, a ditto on the uh, other uh, transmission. American 1060, you heard that also? Yes, sir, twice. Roger, we heard that also, thanks. I just wanted to confirm it wasn't some interference. As you just heard, the air traffic controller in Cleveland contacted another commercial airliner and a business jet nearby, asking to confirm they had heard the same suspicious transmission. They both confirmed it. A few minutes later, Zia Jara, the hijacker who was piloting United 93, is overheard addressing the passengers by Cleveland Air Traffic Control. Hi, the captain. I would like to order to remain seated. We have home aboard, and we are going to back to the airport, and we have our demand, so please remain quiet. According to the Flight 93 National Memorial, the first phone call from the plane was by passenger Tom Burnett. He called his wife at their home in California around 9.30 a.m. and explained what was going on. She hung up and called 911 to report the hijacking. Over the course of the next 33 minutes, 13 passengers and crew members made a combined 37 calls to authorities or loved ones. The first 35 were made using airphones on the plane. The last two were made using personal cell phones. Cleveland Air Traffic Control lost United 93's transponder signal at 941. The controller on the ground was able to locate it using a combination of primary radar data as well as visual sightings reported by pilots on other nearby aircraft. Cleveland couldn't communicate with the plane, but they were able to track it, unlike American 11 and American 77. Three of the four planes turned off their transponders that morning the exception being United 175. Even with the delayed takeoff, by that point, the plane was flying at 35,000 feet over eastern Ohio. This meant that United 93 had already flown almost a sixth of the way across the country, territory that the hijackers would have to make up in order to reach their intended target in Washington, widely believed to have been the U.S. Capitol. According to the 9-11 Commission report, Osama bin Laden expressed a preference for the White House as a target over the capital. When Mohammed Atta and Ramzi bin al-Sheib met in Spain in July of 2001, Atta said he thought the White House was too difficult of a target. He had asked the other hijackers to evaluate the feasibility of this target and was still waiting for their response. Congress had just returned from its annual August recess. If the attack on the capital had been successful, Al-Qaeda could potentially have taken out an entire branch of the American government. The delay in taking off from Newark and the distance traveled made all the difference in determining the plane's ultimate fate. This meant that the passengers and crew on board had time to find out what was going on and to organize themselves. As on the other flights, passengers and crew made phone calls. The difference on United 93 was that by that point, the other attacks were dominating the news. Those who made calls were briefed on these developments. They discussed them with the other passengers and would ultimately take a vote to fight back against the hijackers in an effort to take control of the plane. The last words a telephone dispatch operator heard from passenger Todd Beamer as he was addressing other passengers were, Are you ready? Okay, let's roll. At 9.57am, the passengers of United 93 fought to take back the plane. When their heroism became known after the attacks, Todd Beamer's phrase, let's roll, would become a national rallying cry. 
Within minutes of the passenger uprising, Zia Jarrah began rolling the plane left and right, tilting it up and down in an effort to keep the passengers off balance and out of the cockpit. This was witnessed by another pilot on a nearby plane. United 93 yes. was waving his wings as he went past the, v the VFR aircraft. They don't quite know what that means. Rocking his ring wings. At 10.02, presumably with the hijackers about to be overrun by the passengers and lose control, one of them pointed the plane down and turned it hard to the right, to the point where it rolled on its back. At 10.03, United 93 crashed into an empty field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, located about 163 miles northwest of the nation's capital. According to the Flight 93 National Memorial, the only witnesses to the crash were workers at a metal scrapyard a few hundred yards away. The plane hit the ground at a 40-degree angle, almost upside down, hitting right wing and nose first at an estimated speed of 563 to 580 miles an hour, killing everyone on board. It was the only hijacked plane that failed to reach its intended target that day, and the only plane that didn't kill anyone on the ground. In another 20 minutes, it would have reached Washington, D.C. The final battle for control of the plane was captured by the cockpit voice recorder. The last words captured before the crash were the hijackers shouting, Allah is the greatest. The full recording was played for family members in April of 2002 and was later played to a grand jury during the sentencing trial of Zacharias Massawi in April of 2006. At that point, a transcript of the recording was released to the public and is available to read online. However, the actual recording itself was sealed at the request of the families of the passengers and crew of United 93. Back in Lower Manhattan, there were signs that the situation was getting more dire by the minute. According to Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn, on the 80th floor of the South Tower, there was a stream of molten aluminum pouring out of a window. Why? Because the remnants of the plane inside the building were literally melting. In case you're curious, the melting temperature of aluminum is 1,220 degrees Fahrenheit. That's according to the German industrial conglomerate ThyssenKrupp. People calling from the upper floors were reporting that the floors and ceilings appeared to be sagging or about to collapse. Several floors below in the South Tower, a group of firefighters managed to reach the 78th floor sky lobby, the lower end of the impact zone in that building. Oriel Palmer, chief of Battalion 7, and his team were able to take an elevator as far as the 40th floor and took the stairs the rest of the way up. Palmer, who was 45 years old, was in excellent physical shape. He had run marathons and half marathons. He managed to climb an estimated 38 flights of stairs, all while carrying 50 pounds of firefighter equipment. After 9-11, the New York Fire Department would name its physical fitness test after Palmer. A radio transmission indicates that at least one other team of firefighters was a few floors below Palmer and making its way up. Palmer radioed this description of the scene on the 78th floor. We got police. I saw the pockets of fire. We should be able to knock it down with two lines. Where you, where you, where you know that? 78th floor. No more 1045 call horns. In firefighter lingo, a 1045 refers to a DOA, dead on arrival, or a serious injury. Code 1 means the victim is deceased. In other words, Palmer was reporting seeing numerous dead bodies in the sky lobby. 
According to the 9-11 Commission report, firefighters were able to rescue a group of civilians who had been trapped in an elevator at the 78th floor sky lobby at 9.58. They only had another 60 seconds or so to live. Meanwhile, over in the lobby of World Trade Center 7, an engineer from the Department of Buildings told a group of emergency response officials that the structural damage to the towers was looking grim, serious enough that he was worried how much longer the North Tower would be able to stand. An emergency medical technician was instructed to go to the command post across from the North Tower to see Fire Chief Peter Gancy. The EMT was to relay the engineer's assessment to Gancy directly. The message was delivered seconds before the engineer's assessment was proven horrifically accurate. At 9.59 a.m., 56 minutes after it was hit by United 175, what had once been unthinkable happened. The South Tower collapsed in the course of just 10 horrifying seconds as witnesses in the area ran for their lives to escape the debris and dust cloud coming down on them. According to the 9-11 Museum, there were more than 800 people killed inside the building and in the immediate surrounding area. It was the second building to be hit, but the first to collapse. More on that in a moment. The falling South Tower set off a seismic recording device at Columbia University, 21 miles north of the World Trade Center. The device recorded a spike in activity measuring 2.1 on the Richter scale. This is what millions of people saw play out live on the Today Show. We just saw a live picture of what seemed to be a portion of the building falling away from the World Trade Center. If we can re-rack that to about 20 seconds ago, you'll see something dramatic happening. And I don't know whether it's another explosion or a portion of the building falling away, but something major just happened at that building. 29 minutes later, the North Tower fell just as quickly as its twin at 1028. Let's look at these live pictures at the World Trade Center. The other tower of the World Trade Center has just collapsed. You are looking at live pictures of the second twin tower at the World Trade Center collapsing as a result of the crash of an airplane into its side. That, I believe, was the first tower that was struck this morning at 842 Eastern Time. According to the 9-11 Museum, an estimated 1,600 people were killed in and around the North Tower as it collapsed. Evidence from the radio transcripts, as well as investigations in the aftermath of the attacks, strongly suggest that none of the first responders in either tower that morning thought the buildings might collapse. History was not working in their favor either. There was no precedent for a high-rise building collapse, so they had no reason to even consider it as a possible risk. At 10.01, two minutes after the South Tower collapsed, police and fire officials on the ground gave the order to evacuate over the radio. Because of the unreliable reception, it is possible that the remaining personnel on the streets and inside the North Tower didn't hear it. If each tower was able to withstand the impact of the planes, then what caused them to collapse? Remember the exterior columns that made the building's design possible, mentioned in Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn's book 102 Minutes? Quote, The surviving pinstripe columns on the north face of the North Tower formed an arch around the wound in the building, creating new paths for the weight of the building to travel. In the instant after the plane struck, the everyday physical demands on skyscrapers, gravity and wind, were instantly passed along the arch to those unscathed columns. 
Both planes were loaded with thousands of gallons of jet fuel to make the cross-country flight to California. After the collisions, there were explosions in both buildings. An investigation by Popular Mechanics found that jet fuel burns at 800 to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, while steel melts at 2750 degrees. The burning fuel wasn't enough to melt the steel columns that held up the building, but it didn't have to. The magazine quotes an engineer who explains that steel loses 50% of its strength at 1100 degrees. That figure drops to less than 10% at 1800 degrees. The jet fuel started fires that burned hot enough to compromise the structural integrity of both buildings. There were also combustible materials inside that intensified the blaze, things you would typically find in an office building, like rugs, curtains, furniture, and paper. A 2005 study by the National Institute of Standards and Technology found that some parts of the fires burned as hot as 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit. Engineering professor Foreman Williams is quoted by Popular Mechanics saying, The jet fuel was the ignition source. It burned for maybe 10 minutes, and the towers were still standing in 10 minutes. It was the rest of the stuff burning afterward that was responsible for the heat transfer that eventually brought them down. The magazine also quotes retired New York Deputy Fire Chief Vincent Dunn saying, quote, I have never seen melted steel in a building fire, but I've seen a lot of twisted, warped, bent, and sacking steel. What happens is that the steel tries to expand at both ends, but when it can no longer expand, it sags and the surrounding concrete cracks. The Popular Mechanics Investigation explains, quote, Once each tower began to collapse, the weight of all the floors above the collapsed zone bore down with pulverizing force on the highest intact floor. Unable to absorb the massive energy, that floor would fail, transmitting the forces to the floor below, allowing the collapse to progress downward through the building in a chain reaction. Engineers call the process pancaking, and it does not require an explosion to begin. As to why the South Tower was the second to be hit, but first to collapse, there are two possible explanations for this. Both likely played a role in expediting the South Tower's collapse. The first explanation, the location of impact. United 175 hit the South Tower about 20 floors lower than American 11 hit the North Tower. This put more weight from the upper floors on the compromised steel beams and support structure in the South Tower. The second explanation, the speed of the planes. According to government estimates, United 175 was flying at 586 miles per hour, compared to American 11, which was flying at 494 miles per hour. That's a difference of almost 100 miles per hour. According to the New York Times, quote, the energy of motion carried by any object, called the kinetic energy, varies as the square of its velocity. So even modest differences in speed can translate into large variations in what the building had to absorb. That means that while the United Jet was traveling only about a quarter faster than the American Jet, it would have released about 50% more energy on impact. According to Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn, the chief medical examiner concluded that 2,752 people died during the World Trade Center attacks. 147 of them were passengers and crew on the two hijacked flights. 
At most 600 people were on the floors that were directly hit and were probably killed instantly. At least 1,500 people inside the towers survived both crashes, but died because they were unable or chose not to leave the buildings, some as far as 20 floors below the impact zone. 412 were first responders doing their jobs in an impossible situation that none of them could have ever prepared for. They came from the New York Police Department, Fire Department, and Port Authority Police Department. They were inside both towers of the World Trade Center, as well as other buildings in the complex. Some firefighters were making their way up the dozens of flights of stairs, carrying 50 to 100 pounds of equipment in an attempt to get to the impact zone, rescue survivors, and put out the fires. By day's end, the fire department lost 343 firefighters, the Port Authority Police Department lost 37 officers, and the New York Police Department lost 23 officers. The local FBI field office, which deployed 300 agents as first responders after the attacks began, lost one of their own. Retired agent Ken Maxwell explained. We had agents doing that same thing, helping people evacuate. We lost one, Lenny Hatton. We, last radio transmission from him, he was in the Marriott Hotel that was um, be- located in between the North and South Tower, helping the fire department evacuate people down the staircases. Uh, and that's the last we heard. We, he perished that day. We never found uh, one uh, cell from his, from his body. He, he, he totally incinerated. Former federal prosecutor David Kelly was also on the scene when he and Barry Mon, the head of the FBI's New York field office, narrowly escaped the collapse of the South Tower. Um, we went in the North Tower. We came out of the North Tower and we're told that we're supposed to meet around the corner. And, and when that happened, um, again, there's, you know, body parts all over the place and bodies falling. And there was a huge roar and we, people said, run. And what I, I thought was that this was a, an explosion from a bomb that was in the plane. Um, I ran up Greenwich Street the terminus of which is right in front of the North Tower. Um, And I was getting bombarded by flying debris, and I knew I couldn't really make it much further, so I sought refuge behind a curb that led up to a loading dock along World Trade 7, which was across the street from the North Tower. And me, along with two police officers, got refuge there, and... Ultimately, we were all buried with debris. And I didn't know what it was. Uh, Finally, we were getting covered by debris. I thought I was about to take my last breath because of getting suffocated, and it stopped. Um, I dug out and walked, staggered, I should say, around the corner to where we had overtaken those, commandeered those offices. And I was confronted by some FBI agents who said, where's Barry? And I said, well, Barry's dead. And I said that because Barry was slower than me. And I figured if he was behind me, there's no way that he made it because I barely did. Um, I went in and the agents took me in and tried to wash out my face because I couldn't really see. And 
then somebody said, we've got to get out of here because the second tower is going to fall. And it wasn't until then that I realized that what I had just experienced was the collapse of the first tower. Um, so we went back. We, we walked back to where um, outside of the U.S. Attorney's Office on St. Andrews Plaza, which is across the street again from the FBI offices, where um, many FBI agents were marshalling together um, for orders as to what to do next. I went into my building, which had been evacuated, and I spoke to Mary Jo White. This is a story I think reported in the New York Times. And, you know, she said, I, I said, well, I think Barry is dead. And she said, he's on the other line um, calling me to tell me that you're dead. There were also extraordinary stories of survival. Six firefighters from Ladder 6 were heading down stairway B inside the North Tower when at around the 15th floor, they came across Josephine Harris, a 59-year-old bookkeeper for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. She had walked down from the 73rd floor and was exhausted because of an old leg injury. The firefighters took her with them and continued downstairs. She collapsed again at the fourth floor and urged the firefighters to leave her. They refused. When the North Tower collapsed, it somehow created a protective pocket between the first and sixth floors of Stairway B, and the building fell around it. Fourteen people survived inside this pocket, including Josephine Harris and the latter six firefighters. This became the basis for the 2006 documentary, The Miracle of Stairway B. Earlier in the morning, Port Authority police officers John McLaughlin and Will Jimeno rushed to the World Trade Center immediately after the attacks. They were part of a team of officers that went into the buildings to collect specialized equipment to aid in rescue efforts. While they were going through the shopping mall beneath the buildings, the South Tower collapsed. Three Port Authority police officers, Jimeno, McLaughlin, and Dominic Pizzullo, survived but were trapped an estimated 30 to 50 feet below several tons of debris. Pizzullo would die from injuries he sustained after the collapse of the North Tower. McLaughlin and Jimeno were still alive, but trapped in the rubble and injured. Jimeno was pulled out of the rubble 13 hours after the collapse. McLaughlin, who was trapped in a position below his, was pulled out several hours later. They were the only people to survive the collapse of both towers. Their story was the basis for the 2006 Oliver Stone film, World Trade Center. Back on the 81st floor of the South Tower, Stanley Prainmouth had somehow managed to survive the plane crash, despite being in the impact zone. Prainmouth had seen the plane coming straight at him, and managed to duck under his desk where he survived unscathed. The plane's wing was jammed into a doorway 20 feet from him. Prainmouth crawled the full length of the floor, 131 feet, through what was left of his office, the loan department, a lounge, the computer room, and the telecommunications room. He pounded on the walls, calling for help. There was no sign of any of the other Fujibank executives he had been with in the elevator minutes earlier. In the Eurobroker's office three floors up, Executive Vice President Brian Clark also managed to survive the plane crash. Others weren't so fortunate. An estimated 50 Euro brokers traders were in the southeast corner at the time. According to Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn's book 102 Minutes, most were probably killed instantly because the plane banked directly through their space. 
Clark joined with a small group of survivors as they began descending stairway A. On the 81st floor, they ran into two people who were on their way up, saying that the floor below was impassable, and they needed to go up and around the flames and smoke. While the survivors were arguing the merits over what to do next, Clark heard a voice calling out for help. He followed Stanley Prainmouth's voice to the point where the two were on opposite ends of what Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn describe as, quote, a wall of ruined doors, desks, and dropped ceilings. They removed as much debris as they could, but ultimately Prainmouth had to make a jump over the pile with Clark pulling him over. The two of them went back to the stairwell and managed to get out of the South Tower minutes before it collapsed. They were two of only 18 people from the 78th floor or higher who survived that day. Sadly, the stories of survival were the exception rather than the norm. Only 20 people survived the collapse of the North Tower, and all were pulled out of the rubble within 27 hours. No institution lost so much and so many as the New York Fire Department. 23 battalion chiefs went to the World Trade Center that morning. Only four survived. 91 fire trucks were destroyed by the collapsing towers. Of the 750 firefighters who answered the call, 343 died, almost a 50% mortality rate. Among the dead were Chief Peter Gansey, the highest ranking uniformed officer in the department, Commissioner William Fian, the second highest ranking official in the department, Fire Marshal Ronald Buka, and Father Michael Judge, the department chaplain. Although the initial casualty estimates were as high as tens of thousands, the final official count, New York, Washington, and Shanksville combined, was 2,977 people killed on 9-11 over the course of 102 minutes. It was the biggest terrorist attack in history. Bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen, Osama Bin Laden left Kandahar on the morning of September 11th. He went to Logar province, located roughly 300 miles to the northeast, just outside of Kabul. Bin Laden's men tried unsuccessfully to get a television signal in the mountains, so Bin Laden tuned his radio to BBC's Arabic service. At around 5.30pm local time, the BBC announced the first reports of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Because Taliban leader Mullah Omar had banned television, his deputies could not see what was happening half a world away. According to Bergen, his top aides called an Afghan-American businessman they knew who happened to be in Pakistan at the time, and asked him to turn on CNN and translate the coverage. Bergen writes, quote, Mullah Omar and his top leaders listened to Gast on the other end of the phone as the businessman translated what CNN was reporting. Bin Laden denied responsibility in the immediate aftermath and the weeks after the attacks. But sometime after 9-11, he went to a meeting at a guest house near Kandahar. For some reason, the meeting was recorded on videotape, with the knowledge of everyone present. They began talking about the 9-11 attacks. This is Bin Laden's first-hand account of what he did that day. Quote, We heard the news that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. We turned the radio station to the news from Washington. The news continued, and no mention of the attack until the end. At the end of the newscast, they reported that a plane just hit the World Trade Center. After a little while, they announced that another plane had hit the World Trade Center. 
The brothers who heard the news were overjoyed by it. Bin Laden also said this, quote, We calculated in advance the number of casualties from the enemy who would be killed based on the position of the tower. We calculated that the floors that would be hit would be three or four floors. I was the most optimistic of them all, due to my experience in this field. I was thinking that the fire from the gas in the plane would melt the iron structure of the building and collapse the area where the plane hit and all the floors above it only. This is all that we had hoped for. The videotape, which had a label dated November 9th, was discovered by American military forces after the invasion of Afghanistan. It was subsequently translated and released to the public by the Pentagon on December 13, 2001. Osama bin Laden's family was horrified by 9-11. Quote, I was shocked, stunned. His half-brother Mohammed Alatas told The Guardian in 2018 of the early reports coming out of New York City that morning. They knew immediately that Osama was responsible. Quote, It was a very strange feeling. We knew from the beginning, within the first 48 hours, from the youngest to the eldest, we all felt ashamed of him. We knew all of us were going to face horrible consequences. Our family abroad all came back to Saudi. Thanks to independent reporting by Peter Bergen and the Pearl Project, an investigative effort at Georgetown University to determine who was responsible for the kidnapping and murder of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl, we now know where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was on 9-11 and how he reacted. According to Peter Bergen, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was in a safe house in Karachi, Pakistan as the attacks were happening. Also with him were Ramzi bin Al-Sheib and Mustafa Ahmed Al-Hasawi. Amar al-Baloki and Walid bin Atash stopped by at some point during the evening. These were the five men who had provided financial and logistical support to the 9-11 hijackers, in addition to overall strategic planning and guidance from KSM himself. They were huddled around a television, watching replays of United 175 crashing into the South Tower. According to Peter Bergen, KSM showed a brief look of panic after the towers collapsed. Shit, I think we bit off more than we could chew, KSM is quoted as saying. The Pearl Project attributes this account to FBI agents who interviewed KSM in Guantanamo Bay. Quote, He said that he was initially pleased by the 9-11 attacks, but then alarmed. Quote, When he saw the planes hit the World Trade Center, he was happy, but when the towers collapsed, he was worried, a person familiar with the interview said. When the towers collapsed, he told investigators, he said, quote, Shit. He was concerned how President George W. Bush who he called the cowboy, would respond, he told investigators. KSM told FBI agents, quote, I think we bit off more than we could chew. We had no idea what the cowboy would do. When the towers fell, KSM told the FBI he thought, quote, we've awakened a sleeping bear. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour. If you want to learn more, go to the website zerohourpod.com where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at the hunt for Osama bin Laden in the aftermath of 9-11 and the Bush administration's subsequent detour into Iraq. It will also look at how Osama bin Laden escaped American forces and how he managed to get away with it for almost a decade. I'm David DeSola. Thank you for listening.